you coming to the final section of the Sound of Fury. And I think that um, a question that will have to arise for everyone uh, is why isn't Caddy the person to be telling the story in section four? It seems kind of logical, right? You know, each of her four brothers, each of her three brothers um, get, uh, gets to tell uh, the story in one section. So it would seem logical that Caddy should be the narrator in section four. Um, this is not a choice that Faulkner makes, so we have to think about why he decides against using Caddy as the narrator. Um, so I can just say that to us, it might seem as if it would be good to have a woman's voice uh, in that last section. Uh, it is the missing point of view has been missing so far, how it feels uh, to be Caddy. Uh, it certainly would have restored uh, a more balanced gender dynamics to the sound of fury. So um, I think that those are the, uh, the, the reasons that one would argue for having Caddy uh, as the narrator. And I would encourage you uh, to think about that in your section, you know, to have uh, a discussion on this point, whether you would prefer to have Caddy as a narrator. Uh, but today, in today's lecture, um, I'd like to explore Faulkner's reasons for deciding against having Caddy as a narrator. Um, and the choice that he does make, uh, which is uh, to have not a first person singular, not an I telling the story in section four, but instead to have omniscient narration um, told from uh, an outside point of view. Um, and I would argue that this narrative choice on Faulkner's part um, is also mapped uh, onto a thematic emphasis on a collectivity, on a communal voice. So it's not one person's point of view, but instead uh, really a group of people, um, the interrelations um, and what emerges from that collectivity. Um, in thinking about these questions, I think it's useful uh, to go back a little bit to the publication history of The Sound and the Fury. Um, as you guys know, the first edition came out in 1929, the same year as the crash, as we saw last time. Um, and um, in 1946, Random House decided to bring out the portable Faulkner, edited by uh, a very important uh, author and critic, uh, Malcolm Cowley, um, and so who's also a big fan of Faulkner. So Malcolm Cowley uh, was just editing this portable Faulkner, which in, it turned out to be a very successful edition. It was used a lot. Um, and um, this is the 1946 edition of the portable Faulkner. It really announces the importance of Faulkner. Uh, he's uh, the kind of author about whom you would have a portable something edition. Uh, so um, it, it was a great thing for Faulkner. And in preparation for the portable Faulkner, um, he decided to write an appendix um, to the Sound of Fury to be included in the portable Faulkner. And this is what he said to Malcolm Cowley uh, before it came out, October 1945, about the appendix. I should have done this when I wrote the book. Then the whole thing would have fallen into pattern, like a jigsaw puzzle when the magician's wand touched it. So that's the degree of attachment, of importance that he would attach to the appendix. Um, 
although since he was writing in 1945, uh, almost 20 years after the original Sound of Fury, um, he had a somewhat changed um, idea about the novel. Um, his recollection of the novel seemed a bit skewed, um, even to Malcolm Cowley. So Kali wrote back to him and even made Xeroxes um, of the original Sound of Fury, just to remind him what was in the original novel, um, and asked if he would consider um, changing the, revising the appendix a little bit in light of what he had actually written in the Sound of Fury. Um, but Faulkner wouldn't have any of that. He would stick to his appendix. And not only that, uh, the same year, Random House decided to bring out a due edition of the Sound of Fury and SLA Dime. We'll be reading the SLA Dime uh, a little bit later on. Um, in 1946, those two were brought out in a single due edition. Um, in, under the Modern Library imprint, which is a cheaper paperback edition uh, of Random House um, uh, books. So it came out in the Modern Library edition, and in preparation for that, um, Faulkner was also very emphatic that the appendix should be in there. So this is what he wrote to Robert Linscott, senior editor at Random House, um, the beginning of 1946. When you read it, the appendix, you will see how it is the key to the whole book. And after reading it, the four sections as they stand now fall into clarity and place. When you issue the book, print this appendix first and title it Appendix. Then continue with the sections as they now are. Be sure and print the appendix first. So Faulkner really has very uh, strange ideas about the importance of the appendix that seem a little dubious even to his devoted fan, Malcolm Cowley. Um, and the appendix was in, in fact included in the 1946 um, Modern Library edition. Um, and it was included um, in many editions of The Sound of Fury. Um, all through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the 80s, uh, editors started checking it out. And so in our edition, as you can see, there's no appendix um, in our edition of uh, the vintage edition, um, which is also published by Random House. Uh, but uh, just for your reference, I will uh, post the appendix onto our website uh, so you will see for yourself um, if um, whether Faulkner has a point, whether it is in fact the key uh, to the Sound of Fury. But once again, remember that lots of people actually had reservations about the appendix, so don't um, you know, think that it is in fact the key to the novel. Uh, but the appendix does um, tell us quite a bit uh, about how Faulkner um, thinks about Caddy and how he thinks about the rest of the novel. So this is his very, very long entry on Caddy. Candace Caddy, doomed and knew it, accepted the doom without either seeking or fleeing it, loved her brother despite him, loved him not only in spite of, but because of the fact that he must value above all not her, but the virginity of which she was custodian and on which she placed no value, whatever. Knew the brother loved death best of all and was not jealous. Vanished in Paris with the German occupation, 1940. Um, for a good part of that entry on Kelly, it is a very, very good summary of 
um, her place um, in the Sound of Fury. And you can see why Faulkner would not want her uh, to tell the story on her own, that uh, her importance in the novel is her importance to her brothers um, and the way in which uh, she is really not important. She's an ideal of virginity. She's the repository of virginity um, that is so important both to Benji and to Quentin. Um, and so she's really a kind of a cipher for her brothers. Um, and that's why she is what she is, always existing in the minds of her brothers, but never having an independent existence of her own. But there's one other weird thing that comes out of the appendix, which comes out in this little detail, and Faulkner would go on to elaborate on that. Um, Faulkner creates a whole other story about uh, Caddy, uh, that she went to Paris, uh, that she was there apparently when the Germans occupied Paris. Um, and then there was this other detail about a picture of her falling into the hands of a librarian in Jefferson, a woman who looked like Caddy who was hanging out with a German Nazi officer. Um, and the librarian wasn't sure that that was Caddy, but she showed a picture to Jason, she showed a picture to Dilsey, and nobody knew whether or not that woman who was hanging out with a Nazi officer, whether that was Caddy. So a whole new mystery unfolds in the course of the appendix. And clearly Faulkner maybe was even thinking of another novel based on Caddy. Uh, you know, it's his way of writing a new novel back into the sound can see that she would not be the appropriate person to be telling the story in section four. So we'll see what Faulkner actually ends up with, what he chooses uh, to as his, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, representative um, in, in section four, the most authoritative um, way of telling the story, which is actually through a third party, through this omniscient narration. Um, and um, that is linked to some degree with his understanding of what section four is about. Um, and that is the, the, the two people that he mentions at the end of the appendix. And that was all. The others were not consons, they were black. Luster, a man aged 14, who was not only capable of the complete care and security of an idiot twice his age and three times his size, but could keep him entertained. Dilsey, Day, and June. So these are the two people that he would like to talk about in those other centers um, in section four. And I actually agree with Faulkner that that um, makes a lot of sense. They have been so important all through the novel and finally, session four is devoted to Luster and Dilsey um, and the world that revolves around them and the future that uh, emerges from this focus on Luster and Dilsey. Uh, we already have seen something about Luster that he is very young, but he's capable uh, of replacing Caddy and taking good care of Benji. Uh, what is odd about these three words used to describe Dilsey is Dilsey day and doer. So Faulkner is super conscious of pronouns and it's a very odd way of non, of uh, use of non, what appears to be a non-matching pronoun. Uh, it should have been daisy, she, and doers. And so he introduces the third person plural. And I would argue that section four is in fact 
a session dominated by that pronoun that is invoked in this very peculiar fashion. It is the session devoted to the third person plural by way of someone like Dilsey. Um, so let's, in the rest of the lecture, I'll be thinking about session four along those lines. Um, we notice already, this is the first thing that we notice is omission narration. Um, and these are the other points that I would like to make about Dilsey. Through her, we see the legacy of slavery. Um, we see a shift between outside and inside omniscient narration is an external point of view, but quite often there's a shift back to the interior of Dilsey. Uh, and along with that shift, um, a kind of tension between sight and sound, between the visual and the auditory registers. Um, with, because it's a question of endurance. They endure. Um, Faulkner is thinking about the future of race and of the United States by way of race, of the tomorrow of race. Um, and um, we'll test uh, a concept that we used last time that we took from Raymond Williams, uh, the knowable community. We'll ask whether or not that could be resurrected um, in section four. And the question of resurrection comes up because section four is Easter Sunday is the day on which some resurrection takes place. So Faulkner is using that as the frame for the idea of resurrecting something else. And um, obviously, we think because Benji is in there still, everyone else, Jason is still there. Uh, there's the possibility of a cross-racial we emerging from day and do. Um, and as promised last time, um, the horse, Quinny, actually makes an appearance as well um, in, in section four, The Sound of Fury. In fact, she's very, very important. Um, so we'll think about, uh, we're not quite uh, at a place where we can talk about uh, a community made up of humans and non-humans. Uh, but it is interesting that it is not a, uh, the automobile, but the horse <coughs> that comes back in a big way at the very end of the Sound of Fury. So um, let's start out with omniscient narration. Um, and I think that there's a temptation on our part to think that um, uh, omniscient narration is going to be benign. Um, that, okay, section one is told by Benji, who's mentally retarded. Section two is told by Quentin, who's going to kill himself. Uh, section three is told by Jason, totally obnoxious, but very sad, very pathetic character. Um, section four is told by an omniscient narrator. So uh, we might assume that this is going to be benign, that this is going to be full of uh, goodwill. That is not necessarily the case. Um, and in fact, the omniscient narration actually begins with a fairly off-putting, external uh, and objectifying view of Dilsey in the sense that she's turned into an inert object to be observed. So it's very striking and to some extent puzzling narrative choice on Faulkner's part. This is the morning. Uh, of Easter Sunday, Dilsey opened the door of the cabin and emerged, needled laterally into her flesh, precipitating not so much a moisture as a substance partaking of the quality of thin, not quite congealed oil. She wore a stiff velvet cape with a border of mangy and anonymous fur about a dress of purple silk and she stood in the door for a while with a myriad and sunken face lifted to the weather, and one gaunt hand flexed as the belly of a fish. 
Somebody posted a picture of Dilsey, uh, and it is first of all observing her at very, very close range. This is really Dilsey captured on not even a micro register, but almost like a nano uh, register, um, in the sense that we're not even seeing um, her eyes, we're not seeing her hair or um, you know her, the smile, possible smile or non-smile on her face. Um, we're looking at something that maybe is sweat coming out of her, but it is not moisture. It is a layer, a thin layer of congealed oil that's sticking to the skin. Um, a completely physical, mechanical description of Dilsey at very close range. It's almost Faulkner telling us that when it comes to omniscient narration, he's as good as the next guy. <laughs> he can give us the most minute details, most minute impersonal um, and non-benign um, level of detail attached to Dilsey. Um, from that very minute and non-benign, the sense that it's impersonal, it's completely neutral, um, description of Daisy. We move on uh, to a slightly larger scale. Um, and now we notice the clothes that she's wearing. Um, and she's wearing fancy clothes. She's wearing clothes too good for a station. She's wearing um, a velvet cape and a silk dress. So we know that those are not really her clothes, right? Those are the hand-me-downs um, discarded by her mistress, Mrs. Thompson. Uh, and she's wearing them. With, uh, so right there, we have the legacy of slavery encoded into the articles of clothing um, that are to be found on Dilsey. And I would emphasize that they are to be found on Dilsey in the sense that there's not a whole lot of agency in Dilsey choosing to wear those clothes. They are just hand-me-downs given to her. So slavery is also something that was historically a given, and quite possibly is still a given in the 20th century. Uh, the blacks, the African-American characters in section four are not slaves anymore. This is the 20th century. Slavery was a thing in the past, but there is still the legacy of slavery, the shadow of slavery hanging over everyone's heads as Dilsey is still wearing the old clothes of her mistress. Um, so in that sense, in thinking about the legacy of slavery, the sound of fury um, could be seen in the company um, of other, uh, other narratives, uh, not novels, but narratives um, that were emerging or being produced in the 1930s, just a little later. Um, and this was the project sponsored by the Federal Writers Project, uh, lots of um, during the Great Depression, when lots of unemployed um, authors were going around the country under the sponsorship of the federal government to talk to ex-slaves um, and to get the live stories um, and to make sure that those are on record and archive. Um, so there's that um, desire in the 30s to capture something that would vanish, otherwise vanish forever. Um, and uh, those are really interesting archives to look at. Um, you know. If if you ever decide to go to graduate school um, in literature and decide to do something on Faulkner, it would be very interesting to look at those in conjunction with what Faulkner says about the slaves in The Sound of Fury. Uh, but that's just a kind of a reference point that what else is happening. Um, within The Sound of Fury, uh, we see that the legacy of slavery is basically a kind of a hostility, uh, a visual hostility directed um, against uh, Dilsey. She's an enormously 
enormously sympathetic character, uh, but she's not completely immune from a hostile gaze. That is a part of the omniscient narration. Omniscient narration is completely neutral. Um, it doesn't side with anyone. It can be both for someone or against someone. And initially used by Faulkner, actually is used against Dilsey. But as is the custom with Faulkner, quite often uh, you know, we see that he gives, he's giving us two, both sides of the picture. Um, that uh, neutral, maybe even hostile view of Dilsey is quickly modified. And it's modified when Sam enters the picture. So we're getting pretty much the same dynamics that we've seen in Fitzgerald. The interplay of sight and sound, auditory, and the visual registers um, almost always uh, produces a change in the visual feel. Um, and this is what happens to Dilsey. And it happens in one significant setting, the kitchen. Dilsey is preparing breakfast. Dilsey prepared to make biscuit. As she ground the sifter steadily above the breadboard, she sang to herself at first something without particular tune or words, repetitive, mournful, and plaintive, austere, as she ground a faint, steady snowing of flour onto the breadboard. The stove had begun to heat the room and to fill it with murmurous minors of the fire. And presently, she was singing louder, as if her voice, too, had been thawed out by the growing warmth. So as voice takes over, the pronoun also changes a little bit. We're still sticking with the third-person singular pronoun. But already, there's a degree of interiority emerging in this portrait. Um, it is not just an external view of Dilsey, but the quality of sound that is coming out of her. And as the quality of sound is coming out of her, we see what she's like when she's working, when she's in a place that she's familiar with, that she's at home in. That really is her domain. The kitchen is her domain. And when Dilsey is in her domain, she turns into a different kind of person. Um, the sound that she makes is still attached to the work that she has to do. So there's no cessation of work as she sings, but the very rhythm of work enables Dosey to turn into a different kind of character. She's very, very different when she's singing than when she's seen as an inert object outside a cabin. Um, so, and one thing that happens, one other thing that emerges about Dilsey um, in the kitchen um, is that she has a relation to time. And here I just want to say that um, in section four, um, there's actually both um, something that emerges about Dilsey, but there is also a backward reference um, to a very emblematic moment in each of the three preceding sections. So what we'll see in section four, I think this is the structure that Faulkner is work, working um, really very intricate and very well-crafted structure, um, is to give us one moment that uh, is emblematic of Dilsey. Um, that is a response 
uh, a rejoinder uh, or an amendment <coughs> to an earlier moment that was problematic in one of the preceding sections. So just let, let's look at this um, very interesting uh, moment, um, very memorable and graphic moment, um, although with sounds thrown in about Dilsey. Um, also in the kitchen, on the wall, above a cupboard, invisible, save at night, by lamplight, and even then evincing an enigmatic profundity because it had but one hand, a cabinet clock ticked, then with a preliminary sound, as if it had clearly stroke, struck five times. Eight o'clock, Lucy said. Okay, so clock is saying it's striking five. Dilsey knows it's 8 o'clock, she's not up at 5, even though she's hard working, she's not up at 5 a.m., she's up at 8 a.m. Um, she knows that this is 8 o'clock, she knows the clock very well. Okay, so we are back to the notion of a knowable community. In this case, it is a community between Dilsey and the clock, and significantly it emerges in the course of working, hard labor, well, hard enough, uh, but uh, it's in, in the course of working. And it's in a very familiar setting. That is the most important thing. The kitchen is a familiar setting to Dilsey, and the clock is also her familiar. It is a mechanical contrivance, but in, a case, in this case, it is a mechanical contrivance that isn't quite working. Right? First of all, the clock is really not doing a number of things. It is invisible in broad daylight. You can only see it at night by lamplight. Even then, you can barely see it because it only has one hand. Um, so it's, it's not functioning properly. It's also not functioning properly because it's not telling the right time. Um, but all of that uh, only makes the kitchen a more important, knowable community. It's only when you have a defective instrument and you know that instrument very well that you can prove that you actually know this domain very well. So. Um, Dilsey's knowledge of this place is proven without, um, you know, with just, 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 just beyond doubt that she knows this place very well. Um, and um, this emblematic moment about Dilsey obviously brings back an equally emblematic moment about Quentin and his relation to his watch, right? This is the first thing that we know about Quentin. So let's look at this opening of his section um, and his relation to time, as we've seen, and especially his relation to his own watch, his grandfather's watch. When the shadow of the sash appeared on the curtains, it was between 7 and 8 o'clock, and then I was in time again. I went to the dresser and took up the watch with the face still down. I tapped the crystal on the corner of the dresser and caught the fragments of glass in my hand and put them in the ashtray and twisted the hands off and put them in the tray to watch take on. So two points of contact between the Dilsey section and this section, eight o'clock, same time, uh, except that they have a completely different relation to eight o'clock to the time that is eight o'clock. For Dilsey is another day, and we know that there'll be many more eight o'clocks for her. For Quentin, 
This is the last eight o'clock he would ever experience. It is the very end of the line for him. So right then and there, that is says who tells us fully who has a future and who doesn't. Um, but the other thing is that um, Dilsi is able to make do with a broken clock. Quentin is the one who has a well-functioning watch that he smashes, twists off the hands of that watch. Uh, and he, of course, he hurts his hand in the course of smashing that watch. So right there, it is a capsule summary of his futile battle with time. Um, and the way Quentin gets bloodied on this day, this is finally the day when um, he um, loses some kind of virginity, loses um, that virginity about time, maybe. Uh, he gets bloody in his struggle with time. Um, so um, it's, it's a very eloquent uh, rejoinder to that earlier moment, but also uh, a rewriting of that earlier moment. It is a dead end for Quentin. There's no doubt about it. There's no way Faulkner can keep on, although I should say, uh, actually, in terms of Faulkner's own novels, he actually wrote another novel, Eflin Eflin, resurrecting Quentin um, in that novel. So um, he actually manages to find a way to bring Quentin back as well by writing another novel about him. But within The Sound of Fury, there's no way he can bring Quentin back alive. Um, and instead, the only way he can resurrect Quentin in some fashion is to resurrect him by way of Dilsey's and her ability to make do with time, to come to terms with time, to come to terms both with a defective present and in coming to terms with a defective present to live on to the future. Um, so we can, by way of Dilsey, we can start thinking about the all-important concept of tomorrow, and it has to do with the tomorrow of race. So we know, first of all, the importance of the kitchen and what takes place in the kitchen. Um, we also know in the rest of the section that there's another place that is as important as the kitchen, and that is the black church, right? So these are the two emblematic locales where there could be a tomorrow um, and where there could be an interesting development uh, to that pronoun, third person, plural. Um, and we'll, we'll see that in the church, um, the central figure in that church is the preacher, the Reverend Shagot, and we'll see what he does. Um, and we know that this is Easter Sunday, so this is the resurrection of something, and we'll finally talk about uh, the possibility of that utopian ideal, a cross-racial we. But first of all, this um, is the church, um, the uh, Christian Methodist Episcopal uh, Church in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, and uh, it's a historic church, and um, I want to bring to your attention um, a figure who's uh, written eloquently about the black church, and that is uh, someone you might have read in another class, um, W.E.B. Uh, e. Du Bois. Um, he was a very important author. Uh, but he also uh, actually studied sociology. So he wrote a book, 1903 book, um, called The Negro Church, basically a sociological report uh, based on lots of fieldwork about uh, black churches in the South. Um, most of us probably haven't read the Negro Church. Only probably only specialists would be reading um, that book. But there's another book by Du Bois um, that I bet a lot of you have read or heard of, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, 
also coming out in 1903. And because he was doing the sociological fieldwork at the same time as he was writing this book, not surprisingly, he had a lot to say about the black church. There's a whole chapter called The Faith of Our Fathers, in which he talks at length about the black church. And this is what he says. Three things, uh, and he links the black church back to the religion of the slaves. So this is another way in which there's the legacy of slavery um, in the centrality of the black church. Three things characterize the religion of the slave, the preacher, the music, and the frenzy. The preacher is the most unique personality developed by the Negro on the American soil, a leader, a politician, an orator, a boss, an intriguer, an idealist. All these he is, an error too, the center of a group of men, now 20, now a thousand in number. Um, du Bois' account of the preacher is really interesting because this preacher is both um, someone who's a conveyor of a form of Christianity, a form of spirituality, um, but Du Bois also sees that he is more than that. He's a politician, um, he's um, an orator, he has to be very good at what he's doing, he's a boss to some extent. So there are all, all these other non-spiritual dimensions um, attached to the preacher. Um, and that is indeed the case, uh, because the black church, even though um, the, a church like this seems very local, because it's part of the Methodist church, um, the local Methodist church actually belongs to a national denomination. Right? Methodist church is a national denomination, and quite often preachers would actually go <coughs> from one city to another. Um, the preacher is not always stationed at one place. And that turns out, to be the case with the reference Shagok in The Sound of Fury. This is the background to why this preacher is actually brought all the way from St. Louis. He's not a local preacher. He's brought in for the Easter Sunday service, especially from St. Louis. And so there's something both very special but potentially alien about him. And Faulkner begins, actually, uh, he gives us once again once again, a two-part uh, uh, portrait of the Reverend Shagok, um, a two-part portrait that is based on the reversal. As with Dilsey, uh, we see an external view of the Reverend Shagok, and then we see a much more interior view of the Reverend Shagok. But this is the external view, looking at him strictly from the standpoint of a small town black church looking at this supposedly very important visitor coming from St. Louis. The visitor was undersized in a shabby alpaca coat. He had a wizened black face like a small aged monkey. When the visitor rose to speak, he sounded like a white man. His voice was level and cold. It sounded too big for him to have come from him. And they listened at first through curiosity as they would have to a monkey talking. They began to watch him as they would a man on a tightrope. Um, so this is very much an external view of the Reverend Shekhar, and it's not a sympathetic view. Um, he's uh, someone 
that the congregation to the black local church um, was highly suspicious of, and in fact, they were very disappointed in him that he had come all the way from St. Louis and brought in some expense from St. Louis. And he, it turns out that he's much, much less impressive looking than the own preacher um, whom they would see every week. Uh, so it was a terrible disappointment uh, for them to look at this monkey-like, um, tiny, uh, clownish figure. Um, and even when he starts speaking, he's still off-putting. They're not warming up to him right away because he sounds like a white man. This is a very peculiar um, detail on Faulkner's part. And there's no other way of accounting for it other than that he was really thinking of the preacher as Du Bois would. That this is not just a, that he's not just a representative of some kind of spirituality, but that he's also an operator and a politician. Um, and speaking like a black man is possibly um, a sign that he operates in that mode. But we get a reversal. We get a switch to a totally different view of the Reverend Shagar. And I should say that this external view of the Reverend Shagar really has to do with looking at him as an inert object. This impersonal objective gaze directed at him, and he indeed looks like a monkey, if you just look at him as a single individual. So from that alienating perspective, we now turn to another look at him, um, which is not as a single individual, but as a communal voice. So this is the two poles um, that Faulkner um, tries to negotiate by way of the Reverend uh, Shagar, that he could be looked at just as a single individual, this big shot preacher from St. Louis, or he could be fused with the community as a voice speaking for them. Um, and he takes on a completely different set of qualities when he's seen that life fused with the community. And the congregation seemed to watch with its own eyes while the voice consumed him until he was nothing and they were nothing. And there was not even a voice, but instead the hearts were speaking to one another in chanting measures beyond the need for words, so that when he came to rest against the reading desk, his monkey face lifted, and his whole attitude, that of a serene torture, crucifix, the transcendent shabbiness and insignificance, and made it of no moment. A long moaning expulsion of breath rose from them, and a woman's single soprano, yes, Jesus. Um, we're beginning to figure out why the external objectifying view of the black characters is so deliberately demeaning, uh, is so deliberately hostile to them. Because Faulkner, in fact, wants to suggest that if most people, if you just look at them, they're really nothing to write home about. <laughs> they are very sad-looking specimens of humanity. But the most important thing is that these sad-looking specimens of humanity can be transformed under the proper circumstances. And listening to the voice, in this case, listening to the voice of the Reverend Shagar in conjunction with the voice of the black congregation, that is one circumstance when we completely 
forget the insignificant physical appearance of this man, and we just, we just, he becomes nothing. The congregation becomes nothing, and that's a good thing. When they become nothing, then what really does register is that voice, and what that voice is able to do for the congregation. So this is, no, without question, the moment of epiphany in the sound of fury, and it's by way of this initially dubious-looking creature who then actually transcends that um, and is able, in fact, to do what is supposed to be done uh, on Easter Sunday, which is to bring about some kind of resurrection. Um, so this is um, um, what um, we're already beginning to see happen. Uh, we've already seen a little bit of it in Dilsey's relation to the clock in her kitchen. And now we see something else that also happens in the kitchen. Um, and it is the other black character, Luster and Benji, uh, in the kitchen. Um, the session for Benji comes back in a big way. So in many ways, this is Benji almost incorporated into the black community. Um, we've mentioned earlier that we look uh, that the way in which he and Luster uh, constitute a unit and Luster being his significant other. Um, and here we once again see uh, Benji uh, as Luster's significant other and the other way around as well. Luster fed him with skill and detachment. Now and then, his attention would return long enough to enable him to feign the spoon and cause Ben to close his mouth upon the empty air. But it was apparent that Luster's mind was elsewhere. His other hand lay on the back of the chair, and upon that dead surface, it moved tentatively, delicately, as if he were picking an inaudible tune out of the dead void. And once he even forgot to tease Ben with a spoon while his fingers teased out of the sling wood a soundless and involved arpeggio until Ben recalled him by whimpering again. Um, very odd detail about Luster. Luster doesn't play any musical instrument at all. Faulkner is counterfactually representing him as picking an inaudible tune and not only is it an inaudible tune, not only has Luster become a musician in this moment, but he's playing a special kind of music, an arpeggio. Okay, so what is an arpeggio? It is a special <coughs> musical technique. Um, the chord not playing, not being played in unison, but played in sequence. Usually, the chord will be played together. But the arpeggio is one in which you play the chord in sequence, one at a time. So another way, um, another the English translation for the Italian word uh, arpeggio is actually a broken chord. Um, and this is actually the kind of music that, uh, that, that, that Luster plays, is that slavery and the legacy of slavery is that broken chord. It is not the most harmonious kind of music. Um, but as we know, this uh, Schubert actually has a great piece of music called the Peggioni Sonata. It's a wonderful piece of music. Um, and it's one of the most famous signature pieces by Schubert. Um, but um, this is um, 
last days when quite playing that, uh, but his arpeggio is interesting, and in that Faulkner is turning this, uh, you know, not very well school black character into a trained musician. So this is the reconstitution of a knowable community based on a special kind of knowledge. And we know that Luster actually does know something, right? He knows something, that's why he's absent-minded. His mind is fixated on something else, something that only he knows. So let's go back um, to what it is that Luster knows that makes him so absent-minded at this moment. This is the second uh, reference back to an earlier moment in uh, an earlier section. Uh, this is actually the very ending of the Benji section. So that one is resurrected as well in the absent-mindedness of, 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 of Luster. Um, same configuration, Luster and Benji. He put my gown on, I hushed, and then Luster stopped, his head toward the window. Then he went to the window and looked out. He came back and took my arm. Here she come, he said, be quiet now. We went to the window and looked out. He came out of Quentin's window and climbed across into the tree. We watched the tree shaking. The shaking went down the tree. Then we came out and we watched it go across the grass. Then we couldn't see it. Benji is totally clueless at this moment. Luster is already knowledgeable about what exactly is coming out of Quentin's window. So that when we do find out in section four that Quentin has run away, that she's taken all Jason's money with her and she runs away. That is old news to Luster. He's known all through the novel, starting from section one, he already, that bit of knowledge is in his possession. So this is the reconstitution of a knowable community for Luster is that he is familiar. Quentin is his familiar. He knows her well enough to know that this is something that she might do. Um, and it is that reconstitution of a knowable community that once again resurrects this previous moment from Benji and allows it to take on a new life. So since we're already looking at the structure of two resurrected earlier moments in section four of the Sound of Fury. Let's look at the resurrection of one other thing, and not surprisingly, it is the third brother who would get resurrected in that moment. And this has to do with a landmark in um, Oxford, which is the courthouse square. And we know that Luster and Benji are in the habit of going out uh, for a ride with Queenie, the horse. Um, but in this case, in, at the very end of the Sound of Fury, something seems to be going wrong. Um, Luster and Benji go on a ride probably every day, and nothing especially happens. Um, you know, it's just a peaceful ride. But on this one occasion, something seems to be going wrong, and Benji is bellowing without stop on this Right. Something seems to be going wrong. Luster, for all his knowledge of what Quentin does, is actually incapable of controlling the situation. He's unable to stop Benji.
from bellowing. It actually takes Jason's intervention to stop the bellowing of Benji. So let's look at what it is that Jason is able to do. With a backhanded blow, he hurled Luster aside and caught the reins and saw Quinny about and doubled the reins back and slashed her across the hips. He cut her again and again into a plunging gallop while Ben's hoarse agony roared about them and swung her about to the right of the monument. Then he struck Luster over the head with his fist. Don't you know better than to take him to the left, he said. He reached back and struck Ben, breaking the flower stalk again. Queenie moved again. Her feet began to clock clock steadily again. And at once, Ben hushed. Luster looked quickly back over his, sh his shoulder. Then he drove on. The broken flower drooped over Ben's fist, and his eyes were empty and blue and serene again as corners and facade flow smoothly once more from left to right, post and tree, window and doorway, and signboard, each in its ordered place. So that was what went wrong initially with the rye, that Luster, for some reason, had forgotten that they're supposed to go to the right of the monument. He makes Quinny go to the left, and so everything is happening in the wrong order. And because Benji cannot stand anything happening in the wrong order, nothing will stop him from following. So this is a very interesting moment when Faulkner has granted to Luster a lot of knowledge. He knows Quentin very well, but for some reason he doesn't know Benji on this one occasion. It takes Jason, actually, to demonstrate his knowledge of his own brother, Benji. He doesn't love Benji, but he knows Benji very well. He knows that it would have to be to the right of the monument, and he's able to correct it, that mistake. So after all we've seen, Jason's terrible problems with the automobile, at the very end of the Sound of Fury, Father is able to resurrect Jason to a much happier fate. Automobile is gone. It's back to the world of horses and carriages, a 19th century world still lingering on and to some extent accommodate, accommodating Jason even in the 20th century. It's not a pretty sight. It's not a nonviolent world. Jason is still hitting Luster. He's breaking Ben's flower. So none of the obnoxious things about Jason have gone away. He hasn't turned into a sweet person. He's still a monster. But while he remains a monster, Faulkner has made his world one that he can live in and that he can be a hero of sorts in this very one brief moment. He can be the person who comes to the rescue and set everything back onto the right track, literally. So this is the way in which the very ending of The Sound of Fury is in fact an Easter Sunday story about resurrection.